Hello. It's a full house today. Woo. Cool. Um, I'm uh, so glad to be here. I'm so glad to be able to share God's word with you today. Um, the passage today um, is a little bit difficult to understand, and it's um, a long passage because it's three chapters in Romans, um, and that's really Pastor Steve's fault because... Um, you know, the next talk will be on Romans chapter 12, so I really do have to cover three chapters. Um, but it is not his fault that I'm preaching on this very difficult chapter. It's not because he just wants to throw me into the deep end and give me the hardest chapter <laughs> um, in Romans, but it's because I chose this date. <laughs> and yeah, so here we are. So would you join, um, join me in praying to God and asking him for his help as we understand his word together. Yeah, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks um, that we have the privilege to come and hear from your word. Father, we pray that you would enlighten us and give us understanding so that we may know you more. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've said, um, Romans chapters 9 to 11, it's a bit of a tricky passage. Some people have called Romans 9-11 as one of the most difficult passages of the Bible for people to understand. So for those who have read it recently, right, um, I wonder how you felt about it. Was it hard? Was it easy? There are two, basically, uh, two big questions, basically. The number one question is this. Why are these three chapters placed here in the book of Romans? If we look at the structure on the PowerPoint slide, we will see that in the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 8 is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 9 to 11 deals with God's relationship with the Jewish people, mostly. And chapters 12 to 15 is about how to live out the gospel in our daily lives. So if you take out the middle section, it would have actually flowed on really well. So why are these three chapters inserted between chapter 8 and chapter 12? That's actually a very important question to ask because even some, like, very, uh, some famous preachers, they think that you know, it's, it's, it's put here because you know, Paul just really wanted to teach something about Israel and something about the Gentiles and the Israel um, and the Israelites. But is that really the case? Some other people thought, maybe it's like a random rant. This is something that is really big in Paul's heart, so he just decided to include that as a rant. Okay, so we're going to find out today, why is Romans 9 to 11 placed there in the structure of Romans? The second reason why this is a difficult passage, it's because it contains some very controversial content. Chapter 9 um, has some very explicit verses on God's freedom to elect people. So I'm referring to verses like chapter 9, 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Or chapter 9, 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Ooh. <laughs> These three chapters have generated very heated discussion on God's sovereignty and human responsibility 
And along with that, the deep questioning of God's character. Why would God do that? What kind of God is he? These verses are here, and it's important that we discuss them as part of the text. I'm not claiming that I have all the answers. All I can say is that I'm trying my best to give you what I think is the faithful interpretation of this text in its, in its context. But if you disagree with me, that's okay. Um, we can have a discussion afterwards, but you'll have to pay for the coffee, okay? <laughs> I know it's unusual for a sermon to cover so much text, three chapters in one setting, but I really believe the three chapters need to be read together in order to give us the best understanding. Ideally, I would love to go through this verse by verse and discuss every unit of thought with you, but if I do that, Pastor Steve will get really nervous and no one will be eating dinner. So this is what's going to happen. I will first address the function and the importance of Romans 9 to 11 in the book of Romans. After that, we will spend a little bit of time, actually a, quite a big chunk of our time, um, on the overview of these three chapters organized according to its main ideas. After that, um, we will spend a little bit of time on the difficult verses that we had just seen. So does that sound okay? Are we ready? <laughs> and Mel, um, I'm going to need you to shield me. Shield me from Steve's anxious glances when he gets to around the 30-minute mark. I'm an inexperienced preacher, so if I go over, you'll all forgive me, right? <laughs> all right, so um, please keep your Bible open and do try to follow along. Let's look at point one. The function of chapters 9 to 11 in the book of Romans. I want to start off by saying that I believe these three chapters are placed here by Paul purposefully and intentionally. It wasn't some random thought that Paul just want, decided to include because he was trying to teach about election and free will, or that it was a good idea to expand the theological understanding of the Christians at Rome. In fact, I think um, chapter 9 to 11 is a continuation of chapter 8, and it is actually critical in our acceptance of Romans 1 to 8. Here's why. Last week, we learned some pretty awesome truths from Romans chapter 8. We learned that because of Jesus, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. We are now children of God, co-heirs with Christ. We have a resurrection like Jesus, and we know that God is for us. Nothing in the universe can separate us from the love of God. Okay, that's, um, can you go to the next slide, please? Oh, okay, something happened there. Okay, so we learned these um, amazing verses from chapter 8. It's very inspiring and very encouraging, but there is a problem. You see, during Paul's time, the Jewish people had an expectation from the Old Testament that God would save the whole Jewish nation. But instead of seeing the Jewish nation saved, the Jewish people as a whole seemed to have fallen outside of God's salvation in Jesus. So the big question is this, if God couldn't keep his promise to the Jewish people, his original chosen people, then how much assurance can the Christians have that God will keep his promise to us? God had just promised all these wonderful things in chapter 8. 
But if he couldn't keep his promise with the Jewish people to save them, then what assurance do we have that God would keep his promise to us? Without answering this question, the first eight chapters of Romans would seem like empty talk, or as Mel put it today, rubbish. So the question is, can God really be trusted? Is God really faithful? Will God actually keep his promise? Romans 9 to 11 is Paul's response to this question. Has God's word failed? Chapter 9, verse 6. Has God's word failed? And his answer, it has not. God's promise to save Israel hasn't failed. Yes, it's true that most of them seem to be missing out on God's salvation, but it's not because God has broken his promise. It's actually because of other reasons. We are now going to break down Paul's response section by section, and we are now at point two of the talk. The first thing Paul tells us that it is clear from the Old Testament that God was never under any obligation to save all Israel, as in all the physical descendant of Jacob. So Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably. He says in verse six to nine, uh, sorry, six to seven, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. The Bible has always been clear that just because you are the physical descendant of someone doesn't make you the true son of the person. This is especially the case when it comes to God's promise. As we know in the next slide, um, God chose Abraham, and this is where it all started in Genesis chapter 12. God chose Abraham and gave him some promises, or very special promises, not just some promises, um, promises for him and for his descendants. Um, for example, God said he would give his descendants a special land, the promised land, that he would make them into a great nation and that they would enjoy a special relationship with God. But not every son of Abraham inherited this promise. Look, Abraham had Ishmael, Isaac, and other children. But it was Isaac who inherited the promise that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac had Esau and Jacob, whose name later got changed to Israel, and Jacob was the one that inherited the promise. And then under Jacob, we have the 12 tribes of Israel, um, or the Jews. So this proves, um, this, I guess this uh, Paul is trying to prove that from this diagram, I guess, from this diagram that not every son, every physical descendant of Abraham is a true Israelite, and not every Israelite is a true son of Abraham. So there is a very important concept in the Bible, and this concept is called the remnant. In the Old Testament, the remnants were a small group of Jewish people who stayed faithful to God when the rest of the nations turned away from him. In chapter 9, verse 27, Paul makes it clear by quoting Isaiah that God's promise wasn't for every biological Jew, but for the faithful remnant. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. He's quoting the Bible to show that 
God's promise was to save the remnant. God hasn't failed. His promise was for the remnant of Israel to be saved, not all physical descendants of Israel. But then you might ask the question, why wouldn't God save all Israel? Aren't they his special chosen people? Why only save a small group? Why only save the remnant? Well, the short answer is because God is saving all who trust in him. It's never been about ethnicity or pedigree. God is the God of the whole world, and he has the same standard for everybody, whether they are Jewish or Korean or Chinese. The same applies to everyone. If people trust in Jesus, they are saved. If people try to save themselves through their own effort, they will not be. Romans 10, we're now in chapter 10, Romans 10, verses 11 and 12 tells us this. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just as we've already discovered in Romans chapter 2, God does not show favoritism. The reason why the Jewish people aren't saved isn't because God has broken his promise to them. In fact, God did send them a savior as promised, but they didn't trust in God or his savior. Instead, they trusted in their own efforts and works. Chapter 10 verse 3 tells us, they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. This is the great tragedy. The Jewish people had the law. They should have been the first to recognize and accept Jesus as their king because the law pointed to him. But, uh, uh, and chapter 10 tells us, chapter 10 verse 4 tells us, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So it should have been clear that Jesus Christ is the goal of the law, but they missed the point. So it's kind of like this picture. What do you see? Duck? Rabbit? Duck or rabbit? Both. Okay, the next picture. What do you see? A face? Or there's a person, like a, maybe an old woman, old lady in the middle? Tree, okay. Okay, thanks, Steve. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> okay, so um, they tried to follow the law, but they didn't understand the true function of the law. They missed the point, just like that picture, right? They could see the face, but they couldn't see the woman. They could see that it was a duck, but not the rabbit. But you might ask, isn't it a bit unfair? I mean, a bit harsh? It wasn't easy to see the picture. Like, Steve didn't see it, he saw the tree. Like, you know, some people just don't see the duck or the rabbit. You can't expect everyone to pick up that it's both a duck and a rabbit, right? So you can't expect all the Israelites to be able to read the Old Testament and pick up that Jesus was the goal. This argument sounds valid. Like, you can't expect everyone to just pick up and understand. But what if, but what if someone who understood the picture actually explained it to them? Just like me explaining to Pastor Steve, hey, look, it's a face, not just a tree. Do you see it? 
Yeah, okay. Okay, and the woman, yes. Okay, okay, that's not a point, okay. <laughs> so if someone had gone and explained it to them, can they still be excused for not seeing? Well, no, because someone had come and explained it to them. And this is what happened to the Israelites. They may not have been able to see that the law pointed to Jesus initially, but they have no excuse because God sent messenger after messenger to explain it to them. For example, Jesus himself explained it to them that he was the fulfillment of the law. And then his apostles and disciples continued this preaching, but they chose not to see. Chapter 10, verse 14 to 18. Please read with me. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they had not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. The, their voice has gone out into all the earth. There was the ends of the world. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached loudly and clearly to them. Messengers were sent again and again to tell the Jewish people that Jesus is the Savior that they missed. But what was the result? The majority of Israel rejected this message. Verse 21, concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Although God called out to them, they were disobedient and obstinate. They refused to see. They refused to trust and they refused to believe. So God did give them opportunity, but it was Israel that rejected God. It was Israel that rejected the Savior, not the other way around. God didn't break his promise. It was Israel's own unbelief that cut them off from the salvation offered in Jesus. But praise be to God, it's not all doom and gloom. It's true that God hasn't saved all the Jewish people yet, and he hasn't rejected, but he hasn't rejected them either. Because true to his word, a remnant of Israel was saved and is being saved. We are now at chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Paul gives himself as an example of an Israelite who was saved. Just like God reserved for himself a group of faithful Jews in the past who didn't bow down to the other gods in the time of Elijah, God has also chosen a remnant for himself during the time of Jesus. Paul and the 12 apostles were all Jewish people. The original followers of Jesus we read about in the gospel accounts were mostly Jewish people as well. And even in the present day, though we do not yet see the majority of Jewish people becoming followers of Jesus, there are, in fact, some Jewish Christians called the Messianic Jews who have placed their trust in Jesus. So God has saved a remnant for himself. And lastly, Paul shows us in chapter 11 that God is actively working in all situations in order to bring mercy to the whole world. In his infinite wisdom, God is using Israel's rejection of the gospel to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles. 
At the same time, God is using the salvation of the Gentiles to stir the Israelites to envy so that some may be saved. I love how the Message Bible words this. So this is what the Message Bible says. Okay. Um, can I get someone to read it? Oh, Pastor Steve, thanks. <laughs> yeah. When they walked out, they left the door open and the outsiders walked in. But the next thing you know, the Jews started to wonder if perhaps they had walked out on a good thing. This is God's wisdom. He can use all situations to bring about mercy. In fact, the hardening of Israelite um, is partial, not total, and only temporary, not permanent. One day in God's timing, all Israel will be saved. Verse 26. Now, people have long debated what this verse actually means, and we don't have time to go into all the details right now because we've got to save time for the juicy bits in chapter 9, right? But I believe from context that all Israel here represents a large group of Jewish people. So this is probably saying that one day a large number of Jews will place their trust in Jesus. Verse 32 sums up for us. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God wants to give mercy to all. It's no wonder that Paul finishes this whole section with a shout out to God. We can see that in chapter 11, 33 to 36. God's plan of salvation, his wisdom and mercy is beyond our understanding. He deserves all the glory. There we have it, a quick journey through the main ideas of Romans 9 to 11. Are we doing okay? Yes, okay. Do we have enough brain power <laughs> to look at the difficult passages in chapter 9? Okay. The main passage I want to address um, is chapter 9, verses 10 to 24. This passage talks about God's freedom to elect people. Paul gives us two examples here. Firstly, he gives us the example of Esau and Jacob, the twin brothers. He tells us that even before the children were born, before the children could do anything, whether good or bad, God had already chosen Jacob. Now let's take a step back. When we talk about election, it's easy for us to make assumptions on what the text is talking about because we've all heard sermons, we've all, all heard preaching on election before. So let's try to put these assumptions aside and when we come to this text, let's ask the question, what is God electing these people for? What is God electing these people for? I think it is pretty clear in Romans chapter 9 that we are not talking about salvation, okay? That is, we are not talking about God electing people to believe or not believe in God. This is not what the passage is saying. Remember, in its context, election is brought up here by Paul to show people that not all descendants of Abraham are true sons of Abraham. That's the context. In the case of Jacob and Esau, it was about electing the child who would inherit the promise, not about who will be saved or who won't be. 
In addition, Jacob and Esau, they weren't merely two individuals. Jacob and Esau were two individuals. They were twin brothers, but they weren't merely two individuals. They actually became two people groups and later two nations. So when the Bible uses Jacob and Esau, it isn't just talking about these two brothers. Many times in the Bible, when, he, when uh, God uses Jacob and Esau, it's representing two nations. The nation of Israel would be called Jacob, and Edom would be Esau. So what is this talking about? It's not talking about individual salvation. It is actually talking about the role these two children will play, and later on these two nations will play in God's long-term salvation plan. Romans 9.13 contains a very strong phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's difficult, right? This is actually a quote from the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. If we go and read Malachi chapter 1, it would be especially clear that in Malachi, Jacob and Esau were the names of two nations, not individuals. So this isn't saying that God hated Esau, the person, and therefore he sends Esau to hell. That's not what it's saying. Esau here is a nation in contrast with Jacob. God had chosen Jacob to inherit the promise, not Esau. And Jacob is the one, or Jacob, later on Israel, is the one that will play the critical role in his long-term salvation plan. And is God free to do that? Is God free to choose his instruments, which instruments he, would, he wants to use to further his kingdom? Of course he is. This is similar with Pharaoh, Paul's second example. God had elected Pharaoh to be his instrument to further his long-term cosmic plan of salvation. We are told that God raised Pharaoh to this position in order to show God's power in Pharaoh and that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And indeed, this is what happened. Yep, in, indeed, this is what happened. After, a showdown in ex, after the showdown in Exodus with the ten plagues, all the surrounding nations, including also Egypt and Israel, got to see the glory of God. God has total freedom to choose his instruments. After all, he is the creator. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is the one that decides what role these people would play in his plan, and no one can answer back to God, why did you do that? If God wanted to set some people apart, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Pharaoh, David, and even Jesus, he is allowed to do that. He has absolute freedom, and he, this isn't unjust. But some of us may still feel a little bit uneasy about Romans telling us in verse 18 that God has mercy on whom, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. For example, the Bible tells us that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. How is that fair for Pharaoh? That's totally unfair, right? But once again, I can't emphasize this enough. The passage isn't dealing with salvation of individuals. It is about the role these people and nations play in God's overall plan. But secondly, I'm not aware of anywhere in the Bible, but you can correct me um, if you do know of examples, um, but I, at the moment, am not aware of anywhere in the Bible where God would harden someone's 
heart when this person originally had a soft and believing heart. So I'm not aware in the Bible anywhere where God would harden somebody who originally had a soft and believing heart. When we go back to read Exodus, we will find that it is both God who hardens Pharaoh's heart, but also Pharaoh who hardens his own heart. And sometimes, this is um, related, um, sometimes hardening can be part of God's judgment. We see this in Romans 1, where God gave people over to their sinful behaviors and depraved minds because that's what the people wanted. Now, in Exodus, God may have hardened Pharaoh's heart as an act of judgment against Egypt as well. This could be the case because God called the plagues mighty acts of judgment in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4. And also in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God said the plagues were judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Thirdly, concerning hardening Pharaoh's heart, it was never said that this hardening of heart was permanent. And this is really important to understand. His heart, his heart was hardened for a period of time in order for God to bring about his plan. But it was never said that this, this hardening of heart was permanent. So we don't know because um, the camera of the Bible follows the Israelites. So when they left Egypt, the camera followed them. We didn't know what happened to Pharaoh. Who knows, maybe after 20 years of being angry with God, he might have started to wonder, maybe this God is real after all. How do we know? We don't know. All I want to say is this hardening um, was never said to be permanent. And lastly, if we read Romans 9 carefully, one word stands out above them all. And this word is mercy. God elected people out of mercy in order to give mercy. When I was sharing the gospel on campus, many students have asked this question. So I talked to many Chinese students and they go, why did God choose Israel? Why didn't God choose China? Why didn't God choose Korea? What's so special about Israel? Well, the answer is God chose Israel based on his mercy, not because of anything special to do with Israel, but because of his mercy. But we need to remember what was Israel or what is Israel elected for? Genesis 12 verse 3 tells us that it is through Israel all the people of the earth will be blessed. Through Israel, all the people of the earth will be blessed. God never elected Israel just for the sake of Israel. He actually mercifully elected Israel so that all the whole world will be blessed through them. God elected Israel in order to show mercy to everyone. This was the case for Pharaoh as well. God elected Pharaoh to play a role. Yes, he was hardened, but for what? so that all the people of the earth will know God. And this actually included Egyptians. In Exodus chapter 7, after God told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, do you know what followed that verse after he says he would harden Pharaoh's heart? It says in verse 5, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. If the Egyptians do not know God, they would not be able to worship him. 
But if they know God, they have a chance to follow Him. And we actually see this coming true in Exodus chapter 9, verse 20, where some officials of Egypt started to fear the word of the Lord. This was during the plague of the hailstorm. God said, you know, um, He was going to send hail, and anyone who would be, anyone outside in the field would die. And He said, come, and He said, like, uh, bring in all the people from outside the field so that they would not die. And he was actually speaking to the Egyptians. And the Egyptian, the Egyptian officials heard that, and some believed and brought their servants and their cattle in and, was, and were spared. So we started to see in Exodus chapter 9 that some Egyptians started to follow God. The amazing fact is in Romans 9 to 11, the word mercy is repeated 11 times. This is quite a lot in three chapters. From chapters 9 to 11, mercy is repeated 11 times. And most of them are found in chapter 9. Election and mercy, they go hand in hand. Election and mercy goes hand in hand. God um, has elected and chosen Jesus and all those who are in him because of his great mercy. Although he didn't choose Esau to inherit the promise, today the descendants of Esau are welcome into God's kingdom if they trust in Jesus. This, of course, includes the Egyptians as well. And this, of course, includes you and me. So there we have it. A quick explanation on the difficult verses in chapter 9. Remember, if you disagree with me, it's okay. Just remember to buy me coffee and we can have a chat about it. So what are some take-home points for us today? How is the passage relevant for us? There are three very simple points. Firstly, know that your God is a faithful God. He will do what he has promised. He saved the true Israelites, the remnants, just as he promised, and he will continue to save them. Therefore, we can have total confidence that he will also keep his promises to us. Be comforted and have assurance, brothers and sisters, that God's word to us will not fail. He has a perfect record. Secondly, know that your God is merciful. Whether it's in the discussion of election or salvation, mercy is the key word to remember. It's because of God's mercy that he would elect different people as instruments to bring um, his grand plan of salvation into fruition. God didn't need to save any of us. He didn't owe anyone anything, but he elected and he sent Jesus so that he may have mercy on us all. Remember that he is in his infinite wisdom, letting all situations work together, even bad situations, to bring about his plan to give mercy to all people. So dear brothers and sisters, God isn't a cruel and mean God like people think he is. God isn't a cruel or mean God. He is merciful. Will you praise him for that? And the last application I want to ask you, if God chooses you and elects you to play a role in furthering his kingdom, how would you respond? Would you joyfully and humbly accept being God's instrument? 
And if God were to take certain things from you, maybe time, energy, money, or other resources, so that others can experience God's mercy, will you be a joyful and willing partner? Would you say, God, take it. Use it to bless others. Or even, Lord, take me. Use me. Or would you begrudge him and say, God, choose someone else. Don't take my stuff. Don't use my things. Don't, don't choose me. The truth is, God has chosen everyone who is in Christ Jesus to do good works. He has chosen us in Christ Jesus to do good works. We don't know what role you and I will play, well, kind of a little bit, but not fully um, in the work of furthering God's kingdom, but we all play a role. But are you aware of that? And how would you respond to that? If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, then God has chosen you. It's your turn to respond. May the mercy and love of God compel us to say, thank you, Lord, for choosing me. Let me be your instrument. Mold me, take me, and use me for your kingdom. Let's pray.